This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Julian Zelizer to talk about his new book, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and the Rise of the New Republican Party. This book was very recently published by Penguin Press 2020, um, and it is a deep dive, but fascinating in laying out our understanding of how Newt Gingrich, the former Speaker of the House of Representatives, um, kind of laid the groundwork for a lot of what we see in our current political climate. But I'm going to let Julian tell us a little bit about that, as well as a little bit about himself and how he came to this particular project among his many works. Hi, Julian, and thanks for joining me today. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you did come to this project? Sure. So uh, I'm a historian at Princeton University, and I've been writing since graduate school on Congress, uh, different elements of the history of Congress from my first book, which was on Wilbur Mills, who was the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, uh, to this book. And, uh, you know, I teach my classes and I write my books in an effort to make politics make some sense, to provide some historical perspective. Uh, and I often you know, I appear in the media and write op-eds also aiming to do that. So that's that's kind of who I am. And I've always been fascinated with the story that this book focuses on. And and so this book is essentially about um, this upstart, Newt Gingrich, who um, also an academic, um, comes into the House of Representatives uh, as a sort of Republican backbencher um, and and kind of takes over in not all that long a time period. Can you talk to us a little bit about Gingrich's sort of move into the House and and how he sort of positioned himself to take down Speaker Jim Wright? Yeah, I mean, this is a guy who uh, he, he, he was born outside Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, to a working class family. Uh, he spent much of his childhood uh, traveling around Europe as an army brat. His stepfather uh, was in the military, and he finally, they settle in Georgia. And he gets a PhD uh, in history at Tulane University and actually starts an academic career at West Georgia College. But very quickly, he doesn't want to go into academia. He doesn't want to be publishing, waiting for the slowness of the academic life. And so he runs for Congress for the House several times in 74 and 76. He tries to defeat the Democratic incumbent and loses, finally wins in 78 when that incumbent retires. 
and it's an open seat. So he comes in uh, and he had been a Rockefeller Republican for much of his career, meaning a moderate Republican. But in the mid 70s, he, he allies himself with the conservative movement that's taking hold in the United States. And he comes to Washington in 79 and he's ready to cause trouble. He's someone who believes that Republicans had been too uh, comfortable with a bad status quo, meaning they had been out of power in Congress since 1955. And he is not going to wait long to make a name for himself. And he's determined to convince other Republicans that they have to be willing to basically do anything to win, uh, that that's the mentality they they have to adopt if they're going to obtain power. And if that means tearing their opponents down, that means weakening the institutions of government, so be it. Uh, that's what partisanship entails. And and so he he sort of comes in as the Reagan revolution is sort of dawning on the horizon. Um, and he sort of engages with that in his role as the opposition party in the House. Um, how does he interact with the the sort of the RNC and and the Reagan administration um, when he first comes into Congress? They're pretty supportive of him, actually. In in 1978, when he first run when he runs and wins, he had already been um, kind of targeted by the National Party as someone who is very promising, and they pour a lot of money in its campaign, and they give him kind of high-powered campaign consultants, and they're very persuaded through meetings with him that he's the guy who can remake the party. Uh, and then Reagan also uh, is is using him or working with him in 1981 and 1982 to carry out messages on issues such as the war against communism in Central America. They, they quickly see that Gingrich is someone who could be useful to them and, and who won't be shy about being very vocal uh, on, on the administration's needs. That said, Reagan officials, Republicans in Congress, they all see him as a pretty dangerous figure, a toxic figure. Uh, but early on, they think they can use him for, for what they need and contain the rest. And and he comes into this Democratic House um, that had been Democratic since the 1950s, as as we all know, and um, and we have at the time um, Speaker O'Neill, uh, Tip O'Neill, who's also been in the House seemingly forever, um, and then we have the sort of transition from O'Neill, who steps down, to Speaker Jim Wright, who becomes the target for Gingrich as the centerpiece of. The, your historical analysis. Can you talk to us a little bit about why it was that Jim Wright, as you say, was the perfect foil um, for Gingrich and Gingrich's sort of approach to politics? Yeah, I mean, Gingrich's major uh, argument, uh, his rhetoric all revolved around the Democratic establishment being corrupt. He, he presented himself as an anti-establishment Republican and from the early 80s already, he was using the ethics rules that Congress put into place after Watergate to try to clean up Congress as a weapon against Democrats. And he wanted to argue, essentially, Democrats were in power in the House, but they were in power because they were corrupt. They had no authority. And, and they basically were stealing from the public. He criminalized them in the public mind. He had launched these attacks on Speaker Tip O'Neill 
but he wasn't that successful against O'Neill, who proved to be very popular and pretty savvy, even uh, in terms of the media. But then Jim Wright takes over when O'Neill retires in 1987. And Wright, who had been majority leader since 1986, an old school Texan politician who still believed in the old ways of doing business and was not very comfortable in the modern media, uh, he is problematic. Uh, There are stories about him in the press raising questions uh, about ethical issues, about uh, relationships with real estate developers and oil tycoons in Texas stories about a book that he published of speeches that he would sell in bulk whenever he talked uh, to a large group as a way to make book royalties. Uh, And he was also someone who just was not very adept at the world Gingrich loved, cable television, modern journalism. Uh, He just didn't like that stuff. And so on both fronts, Gingrich instantly saw this is someone who might be a perfect foil. And and so he becomes that foil. Also, again, you know, this is sort of like traditional understandings of 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 politics and power. We have a transition. He's a new leader, um, and Gingrich sees this opportunity to sort of, you know, change the narrative. Um, and so, how does he ultimately take on right? And and this ethics scandal that, you know, I had recollections of it. And then I'm reading your book and I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that part and this part. But it's sort of obscure. And it was obscure then. I mean, he, he took these stories that uh, that had been floating both in the national press and in the Texas press uh, stories about right by a group of investigative journalists who were in some ways, protégés of the Woodward and Bernstein uh, generation of journalism from Watergate, people determined to look at the trail between money and government and lobbyists and politicians. And there were these stories. Uh, Some were totally not accurate, and and some were kind of half-cooked stories. They were developing stories. And, And the two that become most problematic for Wright, one is Jim Wright had a business, uh, an investment business with a real estate developer who lived in his district named George Malik. They had been friends for many years and and they invested in different things, uh, including uh, oil uh, investments. Nothing illegal. This was legal under the rules of the house and under the law. But there were stories about, you know, what does this mean? And then there were stories about that book deal. Uh, And again, there was nothing unethical about it. Every member of Congress was allowed to do this. There were only limits on how much you could earn in speaking fees, but no limits on how much you could earn selling books. Uh, And what Gingrich did very effectively is he took bits and pieces of these different stories, and he essentially kept saying to the press, well, this means he's the most corrupt speaker in American history. That was the tagline he used. And he would distribute clippings of these stories to members of Congress or to reporters themselves so that they would uncover more. And gradually, he builds up enough pressure that the House Ethics Committee launches an investigation, Common Cause, a reform organization, says there's enough to at least look into if there's any problems. And and that's when the whole investigation started. And and so this is also something that Gingrich is managing through his capacities in the new media world. 
um, which is also something that you talk about in terms of the development and sort of new space, uh, Fox News and talk radio. Um, how do those components in terms of our understanding of politics shift the, the sort of um, landscape um, for this kind of uh, bomb throwing? <laughs> Well, I mean, most important is it, it allows politicians like Gingrich, even if they're not part of the leadership, uh, a pretty easy way to get their message out. And not only just to make a name for themselves, but whatever argument they want to make about Speaker Wright, for example, or about the Democrats more broadly, Gingrich saw there were quick ways to inject those arguments into the bloodstream of American public life. And cable television was particularly useful in his mind. One of the channels he really thrives on is C-SPAN. And there's a number of stories in my book where Gingrich's big insight is that C-SPAN, which was a product of the post-Watergate reforms. Uh, the House put cameras into the chamber. They wanted to throw sunshine on the institution. And C-SPAN is the channel that, that provides that coverage. He sees he can get on and he can make speeches and say whatever he wants about Democrats uh, and specific Democrats, and it will get the message out to a pretty large public, uh, hundreds of thousands of people, even if it's not uh, the equivalent of CBS or CNN. Uh, and so I have stories where he does this in 1984. I, I recount the story of Can Scam. Uh, where he and, and a group of allies took to the floor at the end of every single day and launched these blistering attacks about Democrats being uh, anti-fighting you know, anti communism, weak on defense, virtually unpatriotic, and accusing specific members and asking them to respond. Uh, and viewers couldn't see anyone responding, so they thought Democrats were basically agreeing they were guilty. Uh, but you couldn't see the chamber was empty because the camera only focused on the speaker. Uh, and, and he would do interviews all the time on this network and make speeches about ethics, about Congress. It was just amazing platform. And not only did he see television had that power, he understood that the more controversial his statements, the more conflict he injected into Washington, the more that the media was interested in covering it. Uh, and this became important with Jim Wright because he gave them this amazing house of cards like saga uh, about a fundamentally corrupt speaker, he was saying, who was right at the center of power and who was taking on Ronald Reagan. So TV was incredibly important to him. And he was good on it also. I mean, you know, I, I, as you know, the famous tagline from Lady Bird that, that Lyndon looked like a stuffed moose on television, <laughs> but Gingrich was able to sort of project um, a, a kind of, you know, gravitas um, in, in terms of his, his disquisitions, um, making the most of this new advent of having cameras in the house also. Yeah, I mean, he was excellent at it. He, he, uh, he, one thing he has is his willingness and ability to say almost anything on camera with uh, an aura of complete certainty and confidence, uh, even if it's incredibly outlandish statements. And and what he showed early on in the '80s, he was willing to say some pretty, uh, you know, nasty things about other members 
things that other members wouldn't be comfortable saying. He employed a language in politics which pushed the boundaries far beyond what most leaders were willing to do. And he used that history as a professor really advantageously. He positioned himself as this big ideas Republican, the the professor politician, even though what he was really doing was advancing a pretty aggressive partisan strategy, a smash mouth partisanship. But he did it with this aura of the, you know, cerebral professor talking about big ideas on the floor. And and that worked quite well. And I, I think if you read the coverage of him, they talk about that all the time. So it seeped into what the media was seeing. And and so the as you say, smash mouth partisanship and also what you call in the book scandal warfare. Can you talk a bit about what this what this is as it's developed and we keep seeing it now kind of all over the place? It's about uh, kind of both the prioritization of partisanship and how far you're willing to take it. And there's always partisanship in American politics. There's always hardball politics. That's that's nothing new. But right. I mean, Gingrich, he basically. Uh, argued that Republicans had to prioritize partisanship above everything else. The old uh, balance that both parties tried to achieve between partisanship and governance uh, and partisanship and the needs of preserving the institutions of democracy, Gingrich didn't think that's what politicians in his party should be doing. It was partisanship above all. That was the first principle. And then once he reached that point, he, he really argued that his colleagues shouldn't be concerned about what we would call guardrails. They shouldn't be worried about, are you going too far? What are the limits of what we can do? Which many senior Republicans at the time were still thinking about. Uh, he would go all out. There was almost nothing he wasn't willing uh, to do uh, in the pursuit of power. And, and that's a kind of partisanship that can be incredibly dangerous because it erodes the ability of the institutions to work and it creates a, a toxic atmosphere that's hard to undo. And, and I think in many ways we, we still live uh, with the results of that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And, and so you talk about this in terms of the transition from Speaker Wright to Speaker Foley. Um, and then Speaker Foley becomes the king that Gingrich topples yet another king um, in the in the election in 1994. Um, but you talk about the fact that Foley sort of says we're going to go back to um, less aggressive situations and and we'll have comedy between the the parties. Um, did did he sort of not see? what was going on? Or was it really sincerely like, I hope we can get beyond this? Yeah, well, that was, it it wasn't just Foley, it was right also. So let me step back for a second in that uh, when my story culminates and Jim Wright decides that he's going to resign, first speaker uh, in American history to do that, 
Uh, he's under pressure from Democrats to do that because Democrats are, are just scared about where this is all going. Uh, and some Democrats are talking to the press and saying it's time for him to go right steps down. And he makes this big speech on the floor on the day of his resignation. And it's a well-known speech in American rhetoric. He, he gives a long speech where he goes for one hour, point by point, explaining why everything that Gingrich had said about him and the ethics committee had investigated wasn't true, that he had never violated any laws, any ethics rules. And he wasn't admitting to having done anything wrong. Uh, he admits he had bad judgment and he admits he would do things differently, uh, but he stood by his record. Uh, and he ends the speech, though, by asking both Republicans and Democrats to, to lay down their arms. He, he says, I'm giving myself up. I'm giving this job back to you. So let's not allow mindless cannibalism, he says, to basically destroy this institution. And the speech is really interesting in that I believe Speaker Wright believed it. Uh, I, I think he thought there was a going back to normal. Uh, he thought that by doing this, uh, uh, an act of self-sacrifice, that he could calm the storms and he could kind of push back against what Gingrich wanted to do. It was very clear soon after Gingrich had zero intention of stopping. Jim Wright was just another kind of part of a broader battle. And Foley had a lot of the same mentality as Jim Wright. That made him appealing to many Democrats. There was a sense, okay, uh, he will bring us back to a, a calmer time. He was a person who liked to reach out across the aisle, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, he's instantly attacked by Republicans fully with a famous memo that was uh, leaked by someone who had worked for Gingrich uh, suggesting uh, that that Foley was gay uh, at a time that was politically harmful. Uh, and, you know, within a few years of Foley's term, it became clear that Gingrich was, in fact, not going away. He was on his way to becoming the leading Republican in Washington. And that's exactly what happens in 94. Republicans regain control of Congress for the first time since 55. And Newt Gingrich becomes Speaker of the House. And and so as all of this is going on, as you note that there's, you know, the sort of discussion with regard to right inside the Democratic Party, that there is um, sort of back and forth inside the Republican Party in the RNC with Lee Atwater, with George H.W. Bush, um, with regard to, as you note, the sort of thinking that um, on some level, Gingrich was toxic, but on other sides, he was aiding the Republican cause. Can you talk a little bit about um, what you saw inside the RNC during this period? Yeah, this is a, a party, and obviously listeners will hear the similarities with today, um, where they were wrestling with what to do with Newt Gingrich. Um, all elements, the RNC, uh, the two administrations of the 1980s, Reagan and Bush, uh, the Republican leadership in Congress, the the, one of the characters in my book is the House Minority Leader, a guy named Bob Michael, who was a very well-respected Republican, a quiet, unassuming fellow from uh, Illinois, 
who was very much an old school politician who believed you had to work with Democrats, you had to focus on actually being able to pass legislation, not just destroy each other. Uh, and all of them were, were trying to, you know, come to a conclusion about what you do. And while most of these Republicans said in public for sure, and even in private, that they didn't like what Gingrich was up to, that they believed he was really uh, playing a lowball kind of politics. They didn't even like what he was doing to Jim Wright. They thought it was unfair that he was essentially criminalizing this guy who hadn't done anything worthy of what uh, Gingrich was arguing. What I also saw was that all of them, all of the Republicans, uh, gradually embrace what he's saying and they embrace him. Uh, Bob Michael and the Republican leadership, for example, start to echo his exact rhetoric, really talking endlessly in 1988 and 89 about the corruption of the Democratic Party and the ethical uh, rot that uh, existed throughout the uh, Capitol Hill and throughout the Democratic caucus. They put out studies to the press replicating this argument. Uh, in 1988, during George H.W. Bush's campaign against Michael Dukakis, uh, at a time most Republicans even weren't still speaking about right and this scandal story, uh, Bush starts talking about it on the campaign trail because Lee Atwater says it's a good way to charge that Democrats are corrupt uh, and counteract any suspicions people have about Bush and the Iran-Contra scandal. And after Jim Wright falls, uh, uh, it's not as if Gingrich fades. He's actually a bigger person in this whole Republican orbit. And people like Lee Atwater, who are now uh, heading these campaigns, and Ed Rollins, they see Gingrich as a kindred spirit. And they're trying to do what he does in Congress on the campaign trail. And, and that's exactly what happens. They kind of come together by the mid-1990s as the new dominant force in the GOP. And and so the the GOP is essentially, if we would say it in political science terms or historical terms, remade in a lot of ways by Gingrich, which I think is the thrust of your book, that it's not just that it's about taking down right. It's about changing the landscape in which politics happens and that that partisanship becomes the overarching um, point as opposed to producing legislation. Is that more or less what you're detailing here? Yeah. And uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a change that's really significant. And um, it, it makes it that much hard. I, I mean, I think it's rendered governance certainly not impossible, uh, but extraordinarily difficult. I try to argue in the book, it's a, a form of partisanship that takes hold in the Republican Party in a much stronger way than the Democratic Party. Uh, and, and it's an approach to politics where partisanship is all-encompassing, and not just partisanship, but aggressive, in-your-face partisanship. And Gingrich never backed down from that mode of operating. He does it as speaker, and he's continued to support it, even in his current role as a pundit uh, and an explainer of politics on, on Fox News. But, uh, you know, in, in the end, if, if you shift the priorities of politics that way and leading officials in a party uh, kind of uh, center on that way of thinking, 
when you face policy problems and crises like a pandemic, it becomes almost impossible to really put forth serious, good uh, solutions because uh, the institutions are too broken. And in terms of the this the sort of concept of the broken institutions, because there isn't a place where this Madisonian system that requires some sort of compromise can happen um, because there is this sort of partisanship that has installed itself at, at, as the, the only thing um, as the, the one thing that one's driving at Um, what happens to the sort of concepts of um, how politics works? It's a blood sport. I mean, that's what, that's what you think of when you think of how politics works. And, and by that, I don't just mean, uh, although it's relevant that uh, you're willing to do anything to your opponent, decimate not only their career, but their character forevermore, but you're also willing to take basic processes and use them in your partisan war. So you can think, for example, uh, one of the notable events of the Obama administration was when the Tea Party, the Republicans elected in the 2010 midterms, come into office and they threaten that they won't raise the debt ceiling, which means uh, essentially approving Congress to pay for what it's agreed to pay for uh, unless President Obama agreed to spending cuts that they wanted. And uh, they use this debt ceiling uh, as a form to advance uh, this kind of principle and argument that they came into town talking about cutting government. And it was really quite dangerous. Uh, They were serious about the threat. uh, And the effect would have been to send the country into default. And many people were shocked as they saw this. And they're like, wow, uh, this seems excessive. Uh, And this seems like a, a way to go after your partisan objectives by using something that's usually totally routine. No one thought of that. Uh, and that's another example. Or, or Senator McConnell, when he refused to even have meetings with uh, President Obama's Supreme Court nominee, Merrick Garland, in 2016, was also kind of extending the Gingrich logic. Uh, if it benefits the party, uh, you can take something that uh, routine as well, uh, allowing a confirmation pick to be uh, vetted and uh, and voted on and say, no, we're not going to do that either. And so it's it's pretty extreme what we're watching. And I wanted to ask you this question when we were first talking about um, how Gingrich was able to um, sort of take on right and, and do it somewhat successfully in terms of the ethics questions, that the, the basis for the argument was that, as you noted, that the Democrats were corrupt because they had been in power quite some time. And there was this good government sort of narrative that was going on post-Watergate. And we hear the same thing echoed in terms of the the tagline that that Trump has used, that President Trump has used with regard to draining the swamp. Um, and so is that a, another dimension of essentially using parts of the institutional structure in service of partisanship? Yeah, I mean, uh, for, for sure. And I think it's important to remember, and I try to convey this in my story, Democrats are not pure. It, it's not a, a good guy, bad guy story, meaning 
Uh, Democrats had made many reforms after Watergate and, and tried to fix up the institution, but they left many things untouched. They didn't really deal with the problem of private money in campaigns, for example. Uh, they didn't deal with the problems of lobbying. So it was a system where there were things, there were serious problems. And uh, that was part of what Gingrich was capitalizing on. Um, that's different, of course, uh, than just then saying the whole institution is worthless and the whole institution is broken, which is where Gingrich went with that. Uh, and nor was Gingrich someone who really pursued reforming government when he was in power or at a personal level. Uh, he was often guilty of the exact things he was accusing Jim Wright and other Democrats of doing. But it's the same kind of argument uh, that drain the swamp, that go after the Democratic corrupt establishment in the 80s. It's, it's about playing into longstanding fears of government in this country, and certainly after Vietnam and Watergate, tapping into this deep distrust of government uh, that existed because of things that had gone wrong, and using that as the basis to win power yourself. And of course, Gingrich's story doesn't end. <laughs> Right. Um, and you start the book with the fact that Gingrich was being considered for the vice presidential slot with Trump. Um, and so Gingrich himself is um, is pushed out of office as speaker because of ethics violations. Um, but that's not the end of his political career. He's run for president a couple of times. And yes, he's always, you know, sort of a talking head and a pundit. Um, so how how is somebody like Gingrich who, you know, sort of takes down Jim Wright um, and then sort of is taken down similarly, but doesn't go quietly into the night, as it were. Yeah, no, I mean, Jim Wright uh, had a very different post-Washington uh, career. He, he spent much of his time in Fort Worth at uh, TCU, Texas Christian University, where he taught political science and he wrote a lot of books. Um you know, Gingrich never really left. Uh, he had some time where he faded a bit and he focused on uh, working uh, at the American Enterprise Institute and also does a lot of consulting. He makes a lot of money uh, in, ironically, kind of the Washington swamp, if that's what someone wants to call it. Uh, he, he thrives in that. Um, but he's also stayed relevant. And the, the most important things that happened were 2012, he ran for president. For a while, his campaign was doing really well. Uh, Kellyanne Conway was his advisor, and he focused his campaign on a kind of conservative anti-establishment populism uh, that he had perfected back in Congress. It, it ultimately doesn't work, but he's back in the limelight. He was one of President Trump's or Donald Trump's final vice presidential picks in 2016. It was either him, Mike Pence, or Chris Christie. I start my book with that story uh, just to show how close he was uh, in that Trump orbit. And finally, since President Trump has been president, he has used the conservative media ecosystem from Fox to Twitter um, to become one of the most familiar voices that you'll hear not only um, speaking about the Trump presidency, but arguing that it's fundamentally a transformative presidency. He's also written a series of books about Trump. 
uh, and, and really equates him with Reagan and FDR, with one of the great presidents in American history. And so uh, he was savvy enough to understand, even when he didn't have power, how there were many ways in which he could be very present in the political world and still be a voice. And and so one one final question about the book itself and what you refer to as the rise of the new Republican Party, which we've talked about in terms of this partisanship. But who is this new Republican Party? Is it the party of President Trump? Um, or is it a party that, you know, is still the party of people like Susan Collins um, or other more, quote, moderate Republicans or the folks who are in charge of the Lincoln Project? The, the Susan Collins, the people in charge of the Lincoln Project, uh, they, you hear them a lot, but they are not the party. They are outliers in the party. President Trump very much uh, is a reflection of where the Republican Party has gone, both in terms of how he does his politics and many of the policies that he stands for. I, I argue very strongly uh, and I even drawn a quote from President Obama in 2016, that Trump can't be understood as some kind of anomaly or aberration. Uh, what really is more important is how the Republican Party came to produce this presidency. And I argue that Trump really grows out of this Republican Party. He's cause, uh, caused by this Republican Party. And, and one of the reasons his, his approval really doesn't change in the GOP is because this is his party. He fits pretty well in it. Uh, and so I think the, the question is, can other kinds of Republicans ever start to expand their base within the GOP, whether it's the Lincoln Project people or younger Republicans who have a very different sensibility? But right now, they're on the margins. Um, Gingrich won. Donald Trump is kind of great evidence of his victory. And I think we need to understand what the party is, where it has moved, and how deeply rooted this presidency is in modern Republican Party politics to really have a sense of, of where we are in 220. And, and this is also what you talk about in terms of the asymmetry between the Republicans and the Democrats, which is some of the work that's been done by a number of political scientists in terms of looking at the, the shifts in the partisanness and, and to some degree, the edges of a, a partisan spectrum. Um, can you talk a little bit about how this new Republican Party is representative of that sort of asymmetry in politics? Yeah, the uh, asymmetric politics is this idea that's taken hold with political scientists and a bunch of journalists, too. Uh, and public intellectuals like Norm Ornstein. And I think it's actually very useful. It basically says we talk about polarization in Washington and how partisanship has pushed both parties aside, but that's really an inaccurate way to understand what's happened. Um, Republicans have moved much further to the right than Democrats as a whole have to the left. Republicans are much more united on that rightward spectrum than Democrats are. And Republicans are willing to engage in a kind of partisanship, whether it's the use of disinformation uh, and, and untruth to things that we've talked about, like using basic procedures as partisan bludgeons, that most Democrats are still just not willing to do. 
and and the parties are not equal and the parties are not the same and the source of a lot of the toxicity in Washington is coming from the Republican party and and that's the whole idea of asymmetry and it and you'll often see it uh, when a journalist writes something like uh, both sides are far apart in Washington so the issue can't be resolved if you follow twitter you'll instantly see uh, on any occasion a quick response to that that no, it's not about both parties here. We're talking about the Republican Party. And I think it's important. I think when, when parties are different, when they diverge in pretty significant ways, it, it's actually not honest to not account for that and to pretend everything's just a big amorphous partisan issue, as opposed to giving a more clear-eyed view of, of how one party has moved in such a different way. So that there's the research with regard to sort of looking at where this asymmetry is and how it works. And as you're talking about it in terms of using institutions in particular ways, but there's also the side where journalism is trying to be balanced. Um, And that's often where the asymmetry is not necessarily integrated into attempts at balance. As you note, you know, if somebody says they're both doing this and the response is, well, maybe not. No, that's exactly right. And, um, you know, interestingly, this is something that Gingrich capitalized on at the start of his career, this hesitance that the media had to, to really calling things for what they are or to uh, reporting on things in a way that they would fear looked as if they were not being objective. And that allowed Gingrich to just throw out uh, a data dump of disinformation about people. And even if it gradually got corrected and and sifted through, initially it was just put out there. And I think that's a problem we face today. And it's been a, President Trump has just exposed these problems. He didn't create them. Uh, But journalists have been wrestling with what do you do and, and how do you report on this well? And the problem when that uh, both sides Sideisms uh, emerges in the press isn't again that um, that that it's it's too bland or something. It's actually not telling the story that's going on. It's it's missing the the causal force. And and I think it's important that reporters and the media figure out a way to to tell these stories the right way. And your book is filling in some of the discussion in terms of the asymmetry in a narrative um, about the evolution of the Republican Party over the last 30 years. And um, yeah, that I'm sorry. I mean, that's what I wanted to do. And I, my, uh, my way of doing this was to tell, uh, to, to find a story that was pretty riveting uh, and dramatic with real people and real moments and real turning points, but to put a face on some of the key players in this, like Gingrich, because if you have, people like that. If you have key movers, which we often forget when we're talking about how this all happened, I think it just helps uh, generate a different kind of discussion. Uh, Democrats didn't have their new fingers. They never really did. And, and that then gets you to this question of how the parties are not the same anymore. And so now that you've written uh, essentially a history of the Republican Party of the last 30 years, what are you working on now? Something totally different, uh, which is what I like to do. 
I'm writing a book about a rabbi uh, who was a theologian at the Jewish Theological Seminary named Abraham Joshua Heschel. And uh, he wrote a lot of books about the relationship between God and humans. But he was very relevant in the 60s, first as a civil rights activist. He marched in Selma with Martin Luther King. He was very close with a lot of civil rights leaders. And then he becomes an incredibly prominent voice in the anti-war movement. Uh, He's the head of a small group of uh, clergy against the war. Uh, And so I'm writing for the Jewish Live series of Yale University Press, which are short biographies about... um, kind of famous and influential Jewish figures. I'm writing a a biography about him. So I've really shifted into a a different set of questions, although still fascinated with individuals who had a big impact on their world. Well, I look forward to reading the, the short, short, um, uh, narrative about Rabbi Heschel. Um, and I hope maybe you'll come and talk to me about that as well be a pleasure to do that. Looking forward. Thank you for joining me today, Julian Zelizer, author of Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and the Rise of the New Republican Party. This was published in 2020 by Penguin Press. I assume it's available at most online retailers. Any brick and mortar store you want to give a shout out to? Any. You can go to any store, any independent bookstore in your area. Uh, And then obviously any online service like Amazon, you can get it anywhere you want. But uh, support local independent bookstores. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you.